All right. How are we doing? Great. Good. You guys have a good Saturday? Maybe not. Some people probably had a less good Saturday than others. Uh, we had a really great Saturday in our house, um, and then it was kind of kicked in the face about 40 minutes ago, but I'll get over it. Um, so uh, Saturday, uh, Friday, I left my lights on uh, when I was hunting because I have this belief that if I turn my lights off while I'm driving down the road of Mel's house, then I won't scare any deer. But then at the last minute, I need to turn my lights on to scare away cows because like I said last week, I have an unhealthy fear of cows because they can kill you, right? So anyway, I got confused what I was doing, left my lights on. I was excited. I was going to climb a tree. I was probably really scared too come back and the van won't start. And there's this ridiculous uh, post-apocalyptic experience I had where I'm walking through all these different sheds Mel has with hanging tools and just different, uh, you know, uh, you guys are farmer people. You know what it's like to be on a farm. Sometimes you've got just scrap stuff everywhere. And so like I'm walking through and it's like, what collection of parts will start my van? And I'm losing my mind because there's stuff everywhere. There's squirrels crawling through the ceiling. They're going to drop on me and kill me. And Anyway, so uh, we get the van started and, and get it back. We jump it, and JR, the expert in my life on vehicles, he comes over and he says, Hey, it's your starter, right? So I buy a starter and I replaced it yesterday. Huh? 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 Yeah. Yeah, I got, I got. A few nicks on my knuckles. Here's the thing. My background is in computer stuff. I mean, I studied the Bible and psychology and stuff in, in, in uh, college, but then I did a lot of computer stuff. And all, raise your hand if you're a car person, mechanic person. I know who you are. Yeah, you would say, oh, well, cars are basic computers nowadays. They're not. I've replaced the smallest pieces in a computer, and turning a wrench like I've turned it to replace a starter doesn't make sense in my head. And in replacing the starter, I broke the radiator cap. I guess the hose had corroded from the pink liquid that's in there. <laughs> Coolant. And it corroded, so I snapped it, so I had to go buy this other part. Anyway, the van started, and it was awesome. And we did really great. And then about 40 minutes ago, the van didn't start. And so now... Uh, it started so many times. It started at 8 o'clock, but then at 8.50, it didn't start, and that's looming in the back of my mind. More important things to talk about here in a minute, but that's in the back of my mind. Why didn't it start? I did all the things. Now, here's, here's what got me thinking about this. Um, I, when I had to replace my starter, I did what anyone would do. I fired up Google and typed in, uh, starter replacement, Toyota Sienna 2008. Yes, we own old vehicles. That's what we do in our life. So, and then I found a video on it and I watched the video because I'm a millennial in my generation. We were taught, uh, we didn't have the internet for, for some time. And then we did. And we were just taught, dude, you need to know something. Just ask Googs, right? The old agent Google, they know everything. And so that's what we did. And, and I learned how to do it and I replaced it. And it got me thinking about just in general, like, how do I know this is authoritative. I mean, this guy was in a garage. He was turning a wrench. He had tools that I didn't have. So assumably he was right. But if you're a mechanic person, is every video from a mechanic 100% trustworthy? No. no, of course not. And here's how I know that. This is just logical inference. But uh, I've been practicing saddle hunting, which is a way where you kind of climb trees like an arborist and uh, you throw a rope and you ascend and you're climbing. And I've watched videos of guys doing this very, very stupidly and unsafely. And I've talked to people who have actually done arborist work, uh, like Chad in our church or, or Zach who visits and, and they'll tell me like, hey, 
Don't ever grab the tree. Maybe if you've climbed a tree like this, you'll understand. If you grab the tree, you, you're going to fall. You need to trust your rope. So you use your lineman's rope and you hold on to it. As soon as you grab the tree, your lineman's rope falls. And so I trust these videos as authoritative, but I also know people who have videos that are, are stupid. <laughs> They're not helpful. And so it got me thinking just in general. Like, I have this posture in life to go to Google to ask it questions. Before Google, those of you who are wise and ancient among us, how did you learn how to replace your starter? You, you asked someone, right? I think is what I heard. Yeah, you had a manual. Yeah, right. You, I had to look at one of those exploded guides to find this radiator part that I broke. It was, it was a nightmare, right? There was some authoritative source. And oftentimes it was connected to an expert or someone who had been connected to the manufacturer. You would find the creator. I couldn't call up Mr. Toyota or Mrs. Toyota. I don't know who owns Toyota, but I couldn't call him up looking at Jason because he knows, but I couldn't call him up and be like, hey, how do I fix my starter? Right? I had to, I had to trust Google, and, and you've already said some videos aren't authoritative. This begs deeper questions. You see where I'm going. This is a cheesy past analogy, but how do we know what's authoritative for deeper, meaningful stuff in life? Like, how do you know how you should live? How do you know how you should treat your children, how you should treat your wife? How do you know when you're too angry? How do you know when you have an appropriate way to approach finances? You're just guessing. Do you just go and Google it? I'm sure you do. You, you read blogs and posts like I do, but how do we know that's authoritative? Welcome to what we're going to read in Nehemiah. We've been reading through the whole Bible, and we want to discover how do we know and fix deeper, more meaningful things? How do we consult the expert? This is the issue in Nehemiah. So a uh, quick crash course in Nehemiah. They're coming back from exile. We've been reading the whole Bible as a chunk this year as a church, right? And so we've seen Israel through all these different parts, and they were in uh, exile. They're in captivity from Babylon, and then eventually from Persia, and they get to come back to their land, right? They're in their place, but it's not really theirs. They're still under Babylon rule. They're in, uh, under eventually Persia rule. And they're rebuilding walls and temple and government systems and religious festivals and practices. They're rebuilding all this stuff. Imagine you're rebuilding society in the rubble of what was destroyed. And you just have in your head and your hearts, the heartbeat of what great grandma and great grandpa told you about, man, we used to have this temple and God's presence was there and we had a king and it was so good and God blessed us, but we didn't follow him. And so it all got messed up and here we are. And you're just, this is like, you know, a while ago, you're trying to rebuild Imagine that. We, we, we don't have much connection to that because we haven't lived in a related sort of way to this. We've got some analogies. Maybe some of you had broken families and you're trying to patriarch uh, something new. You're trying to do something different than the patterns of your family. But their entire culture completely shifts and change. And that's what they're doing. We get to this really cool part in Nehemiah 8. Today we're going to be in Nehemiah 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Those are the main places to go to. Nehemiah 8, 2 Corinthians 1. I'm going to pray. God, you would guide us as we read your word. We pray that your word would bring life, that your spirit would give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Father, we can't, we can't force these things to be more than they are. You, you do that. You tell us that you're going to write your law in our hearts, that you're going to change our hearts. God, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would do that, that this wouldn't just be another Sunday where we read the Bible and we move on, but your spirit would move. We trust you, Father. We believe in you. Amen. Say amen. amen. Thank you. 
We're going to do that some today. Get ready. Nehemiah 8, chapter 1. Here we go. They're all gathering together, and here's what happened. And all the people gathered as one man. That's important. We'll come back to that. Into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, who was the, high, uh, the priest of the time, high priest of the time, and he's going to come. And they said, hey, will you uh, bring the book of the law of Moses? that the Lord had commanded Israel. So you have Ezra and Nehemiah. They, we see them as separate books, but for the vast majority of history, they're actually one scroll. They're all together, right? So it's all one story. Ezra, Nehemiah, they're all kind of connected. And these people, they're gathered, and it says they're gathered as one man. Eight one. They're gathered as one man. That word man is the same word used for man and husband back in uh, all through the Old Testament. It's not the word Adam, like we've seen before, for humanity. It means actual man. But in this context, it's, it's a phrase. It's a coined phrase. They're gathered together as one man, like we would say one body, one church, one nation, one collection. They're all together. They're one. I think that's important for us because we as a church push that we are one in Christ. There's a foreshadowing here. They come together as one man and they say, bring the book of the law of Moses. Bring the Torah. That's what they want. They want the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They want to read this. Bring the law of Moses. Verse 2. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law, the Torah, before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. This phrase, men and women and all can understand, there's an inclusion here. It's not just the, the awesome holy men. It's not the special people. It's men, women, and all who can understand, which the assumption then would be also children, children who can understand. If you're, are you a child? Raise your hand if you're a child. There you are. Hey, welcome to church. We care about you. We want you here. We want you listening. It's important. Men and women and the children, they're, they're all here together. And he read, Ezra read, verse 3, from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. How many hours is that? Yeah, about five or six, right? Some of you are hunters, right? You know when early morning is, and you know when midday is. That's about, you're sitting in the saddle that long. You're sitting in the stand that long. That's about five, six hours, right? Yeah, hunters. Okay, I'm just making sure we're there. Okay, so five, six hours. Do you guys want to do church for five, six hours today? Let's go. Come on. And they're all listening to this. And are these like, hey, man, we're, we're getting bored. We've got to swipe on our phones. We're going to pass notes to each other. We're checking out. No, 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 listen. In the presence of the men and women, those who understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Catch it. In case you're still distracted by my YouTube story. Sorry, my starter's broke. We'll figure it out. Catch it. They're all gathered. My van won't start, but it's going to start. Don't worry. We're in the Bible. They're all gathered. They're coming back from exile. They're trying to figure this out. And they collectively say, you know what we need? We don't just need a new wall. We don't just need a new temple. We don't just need a new government. We don't just need the Levites. We need something else. There's clearly something we're missing because our grandfathers screwed this up and our great-grandfathers and everyone has messed this up. So Ezra, you're the hired holy dude. You're the big guy. Bring us the book. Tell us what God says. Not what Google says, not what YouTube says, not what your favorite mommy blog says, not what your favorite, favorite uh, author says. Tell us what the word of the Lord says. And that's what they're doing. And they read it for hours. They read it because it's the word of God. They legitimately believe this is the word of God that has power to transform their lives. They're not checking out. They're not bored. They're not trying to assess what they're doing later in the day. They're holding on to every word. This is the best we got. This is everything. This is everything we've got. They're holding on to the word of the Lord. There's too many applications there to hit. You hear it. This is the word of the Lord. What was their posture? The author tells us, verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. 
for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. I'm not going to make you do this, but you've been in church traditions where you see this. All the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord. Not blessing the scriptures, right? They're already honored. They're already blessed. He's thanking the Lord. He's honoring the Lord. He's blessing the Lord, the great God. And all people answered, Amen, amen. amen. Lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. As the word of the Lord is read, they say, Amen. After they thank, thank the Lord, they honor him. Thank you for your word. This is blessed. We, so we honor you for giving us your word. Amen. We say amen. You guys know what the word amen means? We say it a lot. It's kind of a very Christendom word, right? Uh, the word amen, originally in Hebrew, it means truly, true. To esteem is true, is right. Uh, true that. Say true that. That's what, that's what amen means. When you're saying amen, you're saying, that's true. I get that. That is true. When we say amen after we pray, we're saying together, that's true. Amen, yes, what we said was true. Amen. But it doesn't, that's, not, that's not the heart, just the meaning of the word. Sometimes you have to understand where it comes from. Where does this come from? Genesis 15, 5 through 6 is the first time the root of the word amen is used. The word amon is used. Say amon. Amon. Right. Here it comes. Genesis 15, and he brought him outside and said, this is the Lord talking to Abraham, look toward the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then the Lord said to him, so shall your offspring be. Here it is. And he believed, he, Amon, Abraham believed Amon the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham said, amen to God. This is true. I believe it. I trust in you. And God said, that's righteousness. You want to know what righteousness is? What a right relationship with God is? What mess, everything's all messed up and mucked up. What makes it right? You look to God and say, I believe. I believe that what you say is true is true. True that, God. That is true. That is right. Amen. The word amon was first used. The very first time scripture is used here. This is Bible geeky stuff, but it blew my mind. It's used here. And then all through scripture, they say amen. Why do they say amen? Because it reminds them of the faith Abraham had. Because it connects to the roots. Everything from them. Where Abraham first said, amen. I believe in God. It wasn't just a mental ascension. Like, we have this idea of facts in our culture. Like, oh, okay, A plus B equals C. One plus one is two. Fact. No, no, no. It wasn't just that. It was a personal commitment as a transformative truth. Something they could bank on. Something that they could hold their entire lives to. Ezra reads the word and they say, this is true. We can bank our lives on that. We believe this in the same way Abraham believes. And then they lift their hands. When do, go like this. Yeah. Where do we see this posture in our culture? Who does this? Referee. referee, good, thank you. Who else? Kids, someone say kids? So, yeah, my man. Children do this. Children lift their hands. You walk around, have you ever been to uh, a tribal culture, you're just around kids. If you're around kids, it happened to me three times this morning in the last 25 minutes. Kids just come up and they do this. Why? Why are they doing this? Because they expect that I will respond to them. They expect that I have authority, that I have something for them, that I'm going to engage with them personally. I'm not just going to say, I'm not just going to say, be better. I'm going to engage them. And when my kids do it, it means pick me up. I want you to hold me, daddy. It's expectancy of dependency. They're dependent on me. 
they lift their hands. This is the heart, Yad, of the Hebrew idea of raising your hands. God, I expect that you're going to respond. God, I believe. And this is what they do. They say, you're true, and I expect you to speak. I expect you to hold me. I expect you to respond. This is the posture of a dependent child. Interestingly enough, Jesus picks up on this, and he says what? Receive like faith of a child. Interesting, man, so many connections. Those of us who are doing The Chosen on Wednesday night, come on, we just watched it. Jesus and the children read all the verses. Ah, it's too good. The Bible's so connected. It's not my notes. We've got to move on. Lift their hands. This is how we approach worship. Church, come on. Like we approach worship and we say, thank you, God, for your word. By your presence, you're acknowledging, God, you have something to say to me. You want to speak to me, right? And so we sit down and we stand up. We do these different things. We, we lift our hands, some of us. But the whole point is to say, amen. Truly, I believe what you say and it transforms my life. And the lie of evil is that this isn't that important. This is just another day. This is just a moment in your life. Fill up your bank of church membership so that at your funeral someone can say, oh, yes, and they attended church regularly. They were an active member of Memorial Baptist. But that's not the heart. The heart is this posture to say, I believe in you. I expect that you're going to move my life. I'm dependent completely on you, my Father. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. Verse 7. Also, the Levites, if you're reading along, I'm skipping a lot of uh, Hebrew names because I'm not going to embarrass myself pronouncing them up there, and I'm not also going to flex that I can pronounce some of them well. So sorry if you're like, man, why aren't we reading this? If you want some really cool boy names, we're looking for some, wife, uh, read those verses. There's some sick boy names in there, but we're going to skip them. Verse 7, also, the Levites, they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, the law of God, Torah, clearly, and they gave sense so that people understood what they were reading. What did the Levites do? What did the Levites role here? Ezra's reading, right? All these people are gathering. Ezra's reading, and the Levites, what are they doing? They're expounding. They're explaining to people. They're making sense of it. Have you heard some say, oh, that makes sense. I say it all the time. I do it in text, especially if I don't want to say much in response. I'll say, oh, it makes sense. Because you've got to say something, because you've got to be the last person to respond, or people think you don't like them. Maybe that's just me and my personality. <laughs> but you've got to respond. Now you're all like, oh, when he says make sense, it doesn't, he doesn't really, he's just saying it. No, no, no. They're making sense of this. They're explaining it to people so that it makes sense to them. This is life group. This is the OG life group. Let's go. Raise your hand if you're part of life group. Don't do that. Uh, but so we get excited, right? This is why they do that. Why? Because... Ezra stands up and he's just reading it. David gets up and he's like throwing words out and he's flapping his arms. He gets really excited. But if you don't go to life group, there's things that can't happen. There's parts that these people need to understand. I'm like, hey, how does this apply when my brother-in-law took three chickens when he said he was going to take two? How does this apply when my starter doesn't work and I smash my hand and I say words that I probably shouldn't and my kids can hear me and I'm all sorts of angry? How does this make sense? Thank God that we gather in small groups to discuss these things, to say, your word is authoritative. I hold my hands to you, Daddy, and I'm listening. I'm expecting you to respond. And thank you, Lord, that you've put people in our lives to wrestle with this and expound this. This is the church. Do you see the ripples? The whole Bible's connected. The Levites are gathering. They're explaining this clearly. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the high priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, they said to all the people, listen, Nehemiah, the governor, helped build the wall, big bad dude, right? And then uh, Ezra, he's the guy that's the, they're like, hey, read us the word of God. And then all the Levites, they all say this phrase, catch this, which means the author's telling us, hey, 
perk up. This is important. Everybody's saying this. This is a holy day to the Lord your God. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the word of the law. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this, is a whole, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for... Say it. Say it like it's on your coffee mug. Joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Say the joy of the Lord is my strength. Joy. Yeah, this is where this comes in Scripture. You know where else this is mentioned in Scripture? Nowhere. Right here. So this time you've heard we sang a song growing up at a South Cape Baptist Church in Springfield. The joy of the Lord is my strength. You guys know the song? The joy of the Lord is my strength. Anyway, uh, then you say it like four more times. <laughs> so you guys are laughing at me. That wasn't in my notes, but it's in my head. And sometimes I'll just catch myself singing this. And I found out this week, oh, that's in Nehemiah. That's where that is. That's not between Moses and God or Abraham and God. No, that's, that's Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites saying, hey, you're weeping? Stop it. Go party because the joy of the Lord is your strength. What do we make of this? They all weeped when they heard the words of Torah. Why? Because they hear that God is righteous, that God is just, and they're not. They look at their own lives, look at their own circumstances, and they're certainly not where they ought to be. This happens often when we read scripture. I mean, let's, let's be real. You come to church, you watch at home, you read a devotion, and your initial response is, Ooh, dang it! I've really messed this thing up. Like, I'm reading the scripture, and I just call it conviction, call it, call it just basic logic. Like, you're reading the Bible, like, I, I just, I've really messed this thing up, man. I just, ooh. And then you want to distance yourself and you isolate. You want to find some other source to tell you you're good enough because the Bible's too offensive. And you, got, you stop coming to church. You stop being around life because you don't want people to say maybe you're doing something wrong. You don't want people speaking your life. You want to be God. You want to be the authority. So you push things back and you isolate and you don't show up at church. And we wonder why you're not here because we love you and we care about you. And it's broken because we don't like the gospel. The gospel is first offensive and it must be. Otherwise, it's not good news. It has to be offensive. They read this and they're upset because things aren't as they should be. But Ezra and Nehemiah, all the people, they say, this is a holy day to the Lord. Your God, don't weep and mourn. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy is an act of defiance. We've taught it uh, during several Advent seasons. Uh, here's a definition we've used before. It'll be on the screen. True joy is rooted in what God has done in the past and looks forward to hope in what he promises he will do. Joy is a choice. Say joy is a choice. Joy is a choice to actively hope and trust that God will fulfill his promises through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Joy is to say amen. I believe it. It's true. I'm going to follow it. I'm going to get after it because God said it and he's true. I can bank on him. I can't trust my bank account. I can't trust my job. I can't trust that I'll always have a perfect marriage because I mess things up. I can't trust that I'll always be a perfect father because I mess things up. I can't trust my band will always start because sometimes it doesn't. But the joy of the Lord is my strength. I can choose to look to him and hope because joy is a choice. It's an act of defiance. Verse 11, so the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, 
for this day is holy. Do not grieve. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions to others to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They understood that the joy of the Lord is their strength. They were first offended. They were first hurt. They were first crushed by the weight of their inadequacy, of their sin, of all the things them and their fathers and their great-grandfathers, all the things that had messed up. Look around. It's crushing. Or you're blind. Things are crushing around us. But they choose to have joy. They're commanded. The joy of the Lord is strength. You want to find strength in all this weakness, all this brokenness? You have to look to the Lord. That's the only way you can choose joy. Otherwise, you're, you're putting in something fake. You can say, oh, oh, this is my joy. I'm going to hit a really good workout day. Guys, I had a great day yesterday. I climbed a tree finally in a good way. I replaced my starter. I had a great time with kids. We caught some of the coolest bugs. I love praying mantises. I had a great day. And none of those things bring me joy when my band doesn't start this morning. None of them. Because it's all inadequate. Bugs can die. Bands can break. Things don't work out. We're all one terrible phone call away from some diagnosis that ruins everything. But the joy of the Lord is your strength. Because that joy doesn't depend on you. That joy depends on who he is. Abraham had faith. He said, amen to God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. We weep because we see ourselves in light of God's character and we are hopeless and lost. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the most quoted verse in all of scripture, God defines himself. He's talking to Moses. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. You remember last year we went through, we went through all these words. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You can bet that that verse would have been read when they're reading the law. They would have heard it. Oh, he's, he's gracious. He's merciful. Oh, but the fathers, fathers, the children's children. Oh my gosh. I know. Oh Lord, my soul, these kids, we've all messed up. You're, you're not going to clear the guilty. You're going to visit the iniquity. But, but he says he's going to forgive. He says he's abounding in steadfast love. How will he do this? Crash course in Israel's history from here on out. It doesn't get better. They have this great moment. And you're like, yeah, we've arrived. You're looking to the Lord. You're reading his word. Let's go. And then you read the rest of Nehemiah and Malachi. And they tell us the story about how people start doubting the Lord. And they're back to defiling the temple. And they're back to marrying people they shouldn't. And having idolatry. And worse, divorcing to create all these family corruptions and tensions. They neglect the temple and tithe, which is uh, 10%. They're giving temple upkeep. Right? The, the, the heart here is that they were not being generous. They weren't taking care of the poor. That's why, by the way, anytime we say tithe, I have to have this aside. Tithe and offering. The whole heart of this is that we have a generous God who's generously given to us. And our natural posture is to take, to hold, to have a scarcity mentality. The whole reason that you're so focused on your bank account, your money, your bills, your life is you're scared it's not going to work out. You're scared your kids aren't going to have something. You're scared that you won't be enough to provide whatever's needed. That's not what God created us for. God created us saying, I'm going to take care of all things. This is why Jesus can say, look at the boys. They're fine. Look at the flowers. They're fine. And how much more does God care about you? Because Jesus understands 
that the Lord will provide, that he'll take care of everything. And this doesn't mean that you don't work and that you're lazy. The Bible covers that too. But it does mean that we live generously. And when they're neglecting the poor, when they're neglecting the tithe, when they're not giving generously, the prophets see that as a big no-no. The the Lord sees that as a big no-no. And so this all gets worse. The joy of the Lord is their strength. Ah, but then it stops being their strength. And they mess everything up again. You can build walls and buildings. You can get out all of political exile and punishment. The governments can get reestablished and religious activities can exhume. In fact, our church could grow five times in the next couple years. And everyone's like, look at us. Things are so awesome. And God can hate your worship. And the presence of God cannot be there at all. Everything looked like it was supposed to, but it was still corrupt and falling apart. And the prophets are there to remind us. Malachi ends by saying, one is coming who will change our hearts. He'll turn the father's hearts and, and the hearts of the children. One is coming. And it echoes the verses we see in Deuteronomy 30, in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, the, the, uh, what we talked about, the wind and water a few weeks ago, the spirit and water, something fundamentally changing our hearts. Malachi ends with that. How is God going to change our hearts? Because even when we all gather, we're all in, hi, here we are. You're hearing the word of the Lord. Are you going to do it great tomorrow? Is everything going to go perfect? No. Right? Probably not. Odds are, maybe you're a betting person. Odds are not going to go well tomorrow. Don't bet on yourself because you're probably going to mess it up. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is King Jesus. How is God going to change my heart? How is God going to make tomorrow not another nightmare? What am I going to do about my father's 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 junk? How is this all going to be made right? Because it seems like when we gather and we read them, it's, it's not enough. I can't do it on my own. I can't show up to church enough. I can't read the Bible enough. I can't, can't watch enough parenting blogs and, and videos. I can't figure it out. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. We need the law to not just be understood. We need God's rules not just to be understood. We need it written on our hearts in a deeper way than I can pierce. I can't, no matter how moved I get and how much I love you, church, I can't change your heart. And that kills me. And God and I argue about it a lot. But I can't change your heart. I can't make the people who are supposed to be here be here. I can't do it. You can't do it. We need something more than just the law, than just good governments, than just good establishments, than just good church services. Something more must be needed. And because of that, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We need our hearts changed. We need the word to become flesh. I'm going to talk about Jesus for a little bit. And here's how I want you to respond. There's nothing on the screen. I've got some notes here. I might just read them because I'm having trouble seeing. But as I read them, if you believe them, if you hold these things to be true about King Jesus, the word becoming flesh, I would encourage you to say amen, like you believe it. Maybe you need to raise your hands and say amen. But this is the word who became flesh. Jesus came to be all things Israel was not. 
He was a better Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and prophets. He was the one all prophets wrote about. He was the priest, prophet, and king Israel, and all humanity was created to be. He is the temple, the pool presence of God, and glory abiding in a human. He's the snake crusher, the seed of Abraham, the branch shooting from the stump. He is the Messiah. He welcomes outsiders. He doesn't just build walls around Jerusalem to push people out. He brings people in. He honors the heart of the law by loving the Lord with everything he has and loving others. He is tempted and doesn't sin. He sets us free from the deepest bondage of our hearts, the cycles of rebellion and scarcity that lead to idolatry, sin, and ultimately death. He takes all the sin of the world and by his blood, he purchases us and makes us right. He's lifted up on the cross so that whoever looks to him and believes in him will be forgiven and made right with the Lord. He defeats sin, evil, and death, and he raises from the grave and he brings peace to those who followed him. He appears to them as a resurrected human, completely restored by the Lord. He ascends into heaven. He's the son of man. He's enthroned next to the Lord and the only one who can declare us right before the Lord through our faith. He leaves us with his breath, his Holy Spirit that enters us through our faith in him and it fundamentally changes us. It seals us as his righteous child. His spirit continues to teach us all things and remind us of Jesus' teachings, just as the prophets foretold about, writing his law on our hearts, giving us a new heart. His breath is in us. Power in the Holy Spirit. His life and teachings guide us. His death and resurrection set us free and makes us right with God. Back to the relationship the Lord always wanted with us. He unifies us with His Holy Spirit as a new humanity to worship Him, to connect with each other as one body, His church, to grow us, to be more like Him, to be more like Jesus, and to go and declare His good news, the gospel, to others. This is the fulfillment of all things. This is King Jesus. And if you want scriptures for those, I can give you scriptures till you're blue in the face because this is what we're reading. We start next week in the New Testament. This is it. The whole thing. This is what it's about. And this is what everything we've read. We've been saying the whole Bible is one unified story that points to King Jesus. And here we are. We're at a whole bunch of people gathered reading this story and it's not enough. Something needs to change them. Something has to do it. And here comes King Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20. Memorize this verse. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, Jesus Christ. That is why through Him we utter our amen, amen to God for His glory. Remember the word amen? That word from Abraham comes back. Here's how Paul recognizes that from Abraham. Romans 4, 20 through 25. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew stronger in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not just written for Abraham's sake alone. Catch this. But for ours, for ours also... It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All the promises of God find their yes in King Jesus. And through Jesus, 
we utter our amen. You want to know what's true? You want to go back? We could do a whole thing on Tov and Ra again, how God said it's meant to be good, and then we've messed it all up. What is good? Look to Jesus. What is right? Look to Jesus. How do I have a right relationship with my spouse? Look to Jesus. How do I deal with my loneliness because my spouse is dead, or I'm divorced, or I'm single? I'm, I'm in high school, and things just are a nightmare because everyone's mean, and the, the whole pecking order is destroying me. Look to Jesus. This is what it means to make sense of the world around you to look to Jesus. This is why we say every Sunday, look to Jesus. Jesus is everything. We say amen through him. We believe him as the truth. Only Jesus can change your heart. Are you looking to him or are you looking to something else? How do you respond to his word? I mean, we gather here, we read his word, you're reading his word through the week. Do you respond to it as a checklist, as another to-do, as a, as a ritual that you got to keep up with? This tells us that we respond by blessing the Lord, by thanking and honoring Him, by opening our hands with dependency and expectation, by bowing down, honoring Him, revering Him, and saying amen as truth. Not as mental ascension of, yes, yes, two plus two is full. I get it, I get it. No, no, no. To say, this is transforming my life. I can stake everything on Jesus, the man who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Everything he said is true. In fact, Jesus said that. It is the spirit who gives life. The words, I'm speaking to your spirit and life. The flesh is no help. All your stuff, not helpful. The words Jesus speaks are spirit and life. As we move to close, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper here in just a sec. But I want to ask you, as we have this time of response, what do you say amen to? Like, what are you saying? Oh, true, true that. This is true. This is what I hold tightest. Is it some identity that you've misplaced to say, man, my, my role in my job, my spouse, my children, the, the way I parent, the way other people observe me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, these things are what I actually say amen to. Oh, amen's a religious word. Now, in its truest form, it just means I believe. True, true, right? What are you saying amen to? Because what we are meant to say amen to is the Father. Our Father, art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done open our hands in full dependency and expectation that he cares for us, that he is with us always, Emmanuel. What do you say men to? And how do you respond to his word? The reason we do life groups, the reason we share life together is because there are things we can't possibly do to follow Christ in this room. We miss some Sundays and then it's 14 days before we gather total and we miss things. But the reason we share life with each other, the reason we simulate life group is so that we can have discussions and share real life about how do we apply the words of God to our life? How do we pray together? How are we one body? Because we're always called to gather as one under him, one people, one new humanity, one body, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father above all, through all and in all. It's Ephesians 4. Are you connected with that? This isn't a, a shameless plug to make you go to life group in a few minutes. Like, yeah, sure, do it, please. If you don't go, go. But also, do you have people in your life on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, when things just hit the fan, when, when you're too proud? Do you have people in your life that say, how is your relationship with Jesus? How are you looking to him? Because if you don't, you're certainly going to get off. You're going to repeat all the same problems that Israel had. That's the cycle. You're not above it. I'm not above it. We need each other.
Man, Mike comes to us uh, a few weeks ago, says, I want to be baptized. And as I meet with him, he continues telling us how his life looks different. And he looks back on his past and he sees it differently now because he's in Christ. He sees how God's always been with him. Maybe there's things in your life that you're not connecting, that you're not seeing because you're not looking to Jesus. You're still just looking to yourself. We need the word of the Lord. We need Jesus. We need each other. We need to communicate with the Lord. Prayer, church, and scripture say us all the time. In our response time right now, I'd encourage you to be asking yourself, what do, what do I say amen to? And one of the ways we do that as a body, one of the ways we say this is what we believe, we hold this to be true, transformative, is we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Communion. Here in a moment, during response time, we're going to stand, and I would encourage you to take time to examine yourself, to ask what, what is actually in my life that I need to stop saying amen to so I can turn and open my hands, Lord. This is why we teach open posture like this. What do you need to open up to? Is it your greed? Is it your lack of generosity? Is it your insecurity, your idolatry? What is it? And then come and, and grab the, the elements we have up here during our response time. We'll explain that more here in a minute. This isn't a magic saving ritual that we're doing. This is a way to remember as Jesus asked us to, commanded us to, and it's a way for us to say amen with our practices. This is true. Only Jesus can save us, only his blood. So during the response time, take time to get real with the Lord. What do you say amen to? Come and get the elements and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together in a moment. You can stand. I'm going to pray. Father, we ask that you would guide this response time. Help us believe all the more. Help us believe all the more, Father, that all of your promises are fulfilled in Jesus. That we can look to you and say it's true because we've seen Jesus. In all the ways that our words and our services lack, God, I pray that your spirit would fill us overflowing with your truth. That we can only respond with amen, with open hands. I pray for those who don't know you right now, God, that they would, they would humble themselves and give their life to your spirit be working in them. I pray for all the situations in this room of things that are broken, relationships, things that are hurting, distance with you. I pray that this time would be your spirit drawing us to you, that we would open-handedly submit to you, say amen to you. Teach us to look to Jesus in all the ways that are needed right now in this moment. Thank you for your love for us. Amen. If you need to talk or pray, I'll be up here.